that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Wednesday Buckeye Talk. It's the rants. It's Doug Maurice from Cleveland.com. You're here on Buckeye Talk. You know where you are. And we're doing rants, and I'll tell you this. We are going to start with Ryan Day play calling, because that is probably 60% of the rants that I received. Well over 100, well over 100, well over 100. Love it from the tech subscribers. And we'll end with some quick thoughts on the playoff rankings. Um, it's I, I sort of had a realization on Tuesday night, which is probably a bad thing, considering I co-host a national college football show all about the playoff, but I'm kind of over playoff ranking discussions. So we will talk about it. As Shahan and I talk about in the College Football Survivor Show, the first rankings are the second most important ones behind the last ones because you get a little look at how the committee thinks about things. But um, anyway, we'll do it at the end. We're going to start with the Ryan Day play calling. And I am, I think I'm going to end up trying to chill people out a little bit. And I understand, of course, this is a rants podcast and a rant of, hey, cool, things seem fine, not much of a rant. So by the whole process, we encourage strong opinions. But, and there were a lot of questions about play calling, particularly the run game, particularly uh, is Ohio State being um, too obvious in its run game calls and giving things away. And I spurred a little bit by uh, Bill Conley, who invented the SP Plus, now works at ESPN. Great stats, great breakdown, how to chart. And you can figure it out too. Um, Pistol formation, which is sort of that short shotgun with the back directly behind the quarterback. Like 10 years ago, it was like, ooh, this is fancy. Now it's just normal. I think Ohio State did it five times Saturday, ran from it every time. And under center, they ran from it every time. So it stands out 100% of the time on that Bill Connolly chart. Um, They ran from under center and from the pistol and then from the shotgun, which is what they do most of the time. I think they ran 19% of the time. So are they giving things away in the run game? And Bill Landis, uh, the great Bill Landis, who you obviously can find now at Rivals and on uh, the podcast he does there, um, had a good exchange, I thought. Spencer Holbrook, I think, asked another question about it. And then Steven asked a question about tempo. A lot of good sort of process stuff that I like. Process matters. How you decide things matters because it's not just about the result. It's about, did you have a good process that gets you to the result? Because then it's more repeatable because sometimes you luck into stuff. So I thought, and and Ryan Day got a little, uh, I don't know if defensive is the right word, but the the general discussion was like, hey, sort of you did, uh, let me, let me do this quick from a texter. From the 614, I really dislike Day's dishonesty, whether it's about injuries or fighting with Landis about the run game tendencies. So again, we sort of had that discussion on a previous thing about, hey, you guys are making Ryan Day seem like a liar. I, I don't want to do that. That's I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right. So I do think people get honest when they get a little ticked off. And I, and I think that's I think he was a little ticked off just sort of about the discussion, about the questioning of it, because I do think he said, hey, from the pistol, we ran five plays and like four of them worked. Four of them were good. So what does it matter if we ran all the time if it worked? And then the idea of like, well, aren't you sort of like telling the defense what you're going to do? And his point is, well, if we tell them what we're going to do, but it works, what does it matter? If we're telling them whether what we're going to do, and he joked, maybe we should even run from the pistol more. Because um, the pistol is one of those things when you have the running back set next to the quarterback in the shotgun, the the running back can't get downhill. 
And he said Travion Henderson's a little bit better when he gets downhill. A lot of backs are. Very common. It's kind of one of the things you give up in the shotgun. They'd be running back started flat-footed next to the quarterback. Pistol gives you a little bit. It gives you the best of both worlds, ideally. Shotgun for the quarterback, downhill for the running back. And then, of course, under center, you get the downhill run game, which is sort of like part of it is many running backs are better downhill. So when you – they want to be in the shotgun because that's what you throw out of because that's CJ surveying. Now the quarterback doesn't have to drop back and he can see everything right in front of him and diagnose. So the quarterback is the, – the, the shotgun is better to throw from. But then the running back, running back can't get downhill. So then you go to the pistol and and under center so the running back can get downhill. But then if you only run from those things or you majority pass from the shotgun, now you're giving it away, maybe, right? So that's kind of the discussion. But you also understand the idea of why maybe you do it that way because, as we just said, those formations lend themselves to having a better chance to pass and a better chance to throw. And I did think one of the interesting things Ryan Day said was from the pistol, you're not giving anything away from whether you're going left or right, because if you have the back offset next to the quarterback, if he's to the right side of the quarterback, right, he's not usually going to take the handoff and sort of cut to the other side. You're signaling maybe which play, which way the run game's going to go. From the pistol directly behind the quarterback, you're not doing that. So he believes that's an advantage as well. And even if they know that you're running, well, they don't know how you're running or where you're running. So there's diversity within that. And I do think one of the things that I've come around on over the years is diversity doesn't just mean pass and run balance, right? There's diversity and there's balance within the pass game and within the run game. So types of runs, directions of runs, um, inside, outside, gap scheme, zone scheme, um, the pass game, whether you're throwing bubbles, whether you're throwing slants, whether you're taking deep shots. I mean, there, there's a lot of diversity and balance within those things. So we can't just, we, we have to make sure our definition of balance is not just run pass. So that discussion, I got his hackles up a little bit about that. Cause like, Hey, we think we're doing it. Okay. And you know, so what's the big deal? So I do think it's interesting, and I do think Landis is the best person on the beat to address this because he does more film work than anybody else who's sort of a traditional beat writer. Usually a lot of the people who are film people are sort of separate people, and most of those film people don't show up. And there's some really good film people on the Ohio State beat around college football, around the NFL. They don't usually show up in the news conferences. So Landis bridges that gap. So I think he's very qualified Um to ask Ryan Day those type of questions. And I think the process questions really matter, even if Ryan Day doesn't like him necessarily. But I do think some of Ryan Day's explanations made sense. And and a couple of things, one of the things is, and, and there's a bunch of pistol questions. I'm going to get to, a, I'm trying to lay something down here before I get to these rash of questions about play calling. There's some very specific things about the pistol, for instance, from the 978. This is Alec L. in Boston. I have some preliminary research for you, a.k.a. a screenshot from Bill Connolly, which I had seen elsewhere, but thank you. I appreciate when you guys send stuff along. Listen, we do the best we can. I feel like we're comprehensive. I feel like we're aware of everything out there. We certainly want to be aware of all the good work everybody else is doing, but sometimes we miss stuff. So if you see something we think we need, send it. Um, Alex saying, I know Dalla B asked about this at the press conference, but I feel like Ryan Day needs to be pressed more because of this run formation percent stuff. Last year, it was an issue that Dalla B noted that the team exclusively ran the ball when under center and in the pistol. Sure enough, against Penn State, 100% of the time running the ball out of pistol and under center. 
If everyone is grading decently in the run game, according to PFF, at least not abysmally, then maybe the issue is just the predictability of the run offense. If the fans and media can see this issue, obviously defensive coordinators and their players can. Why hasn't Dave mixed up which formation in which he runs the ball? I hope you guys press some more on that. I'm not sure how he can't see it as an issue. So that's from Alec, and I appreciate that. And I think I think there's some truth to that for sure. Now, the other thing is, like, it's not that they're in the pistol and in under center all that much. So when you're 100% of something, it's not like it's 20 for 20. So the percentages are good, but I think we have to take the context like they ran 60 plays of offense. They were in the pistol five times. So if you're five for five running it, okay. And the other thing that matters is against Iowa from the pistol, they threw a 79-yard touchdown to Julian Fleming. So it's not like they're 100% all year. And I really just think a lot of stuff is about threat. And even within a game, if in a game you're doing something 100% of the time, if you've shown it on film at other times that you don't do that, that still matters. That's still a defensive coordinator's head. Under center, we have seen them do under center play action deep shots. My gosh, it's like how Chris Olave became a first round draft pick is under center play action deep shots. So if they are doing less of that this year, and I'm, it feels like they are, I do think some of that is defenses, maybe taking away stuff, trying to keep it in front of them. Not as much of that is there, but that's also in there. And I do think any defensive coordinator, even in a game where Ohio State's running it 100% of the time from under center, the under center play action deep shot has been a moneymaker for them and has to be there. And I would imagine it will be a moneymaker again. So the threat, the threat, the threat, the threat, what you put on film, what you make them prepare for, even if you don't use it, I I understand the questions about trends in individual games and trends in back-to-back games and that kind of thing, but I don't think that's the only discussion. And I just I did find it interesting that Ryan Day sort of pushed back as hard as he did. And again, I think it's the exact right line, one of the exact right lines of questioning. My great question on on Tuesday was like, "Hey, do you ever worry about sharing a tunnel at road games?" And he was like, "I'm not going there." And I was like, ah, blah, blah, blah. And "He's like, I'm not going there." Obviously, the Michigan State, Michigan stuff. Nobody around Ohio State wants to go there. I mean, it's the thing I get to think about. So, like, my question, I blew it. I didn't get anything out of my question. So, other people did a better job. So, I think it's all valid. I, I, I absolutely think the whole line of questioning is valid. But I think there is some there is some real information in what Ryan Day is saying. He's not just pushing back because he doesn't want to be challenged. So, um, you guys probably saw that and heard that. And this predictability, right? The predictability is is kind of the thing that a lot of people are latching on to. From the 740, I like Ryan Day, I really do, but he is driving me nuts with his play calling, specifically in big games. The run game is so predictable. And sometimes it seems like everyone can see where the advantage is but him. The running game of the Big Ten Championship in 20, the passing game last week, for instance, right? Um, I get it. I do. I think it's a reasonable line of questioning from the 513. How can a play caller like Ryan Day be so creative and progressive in the passing game and yet so vanilla and stay on the run game? Trevion Henderson and this O-line are not built to punch you in the mouth from the eye formation between the tackles. How about a draw play now and then? Maybe a delayed handoff. Or hey, what happened to tempo? Sure seemed to work on Saturday. That's when Trey was finally able to break free. Day has to be more creative and less predictable in the running game. When safeties and cornerbacks are making tackles on your running back in the backfield, that means they know you were running it. The Ohio State team is not built for that. Accept it and adjust. And there's a little bit tied into tempo because um, Stephen did – ask about that and i was trying to look up some tempo stats steven asked about up tempo 
From the 614, Doug, I didn't listen to Ryan Day's presser, but from the text, it seemed Day was dismissive of Stevens' legitimate question about running an up-tempo offense. Day's answer was he believes going more up-tempo is more effective when done intermittently, which is fine, but Stevens' question was, why don't you run up-tempo more, not why don't you run it all the time, which nobody's saying he should do. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems Day goes up-tempo with his offense rarely. Other than the last two minutes of the half, um, I don't really remember him doing it at all. Again, I might be wrong. Seemed Urban Meyer frequently went up tempo after the offense picked up its first first down in the drive. It was often effective. If you have better athletes, and the Buckeyes almost always do, why not play faster? You would put the opposing defense on its heels and make the Buckeye offense less predictable. So I think it's a reasonable question. I do understand the idea. It's a little bit um, I'm a like I often talk about sample size, right? Like small sample size, and just because something works in a for a small percentage of the time doesn't automatically mean you should do it more. I do think Ohio State, I do think there's a conversation here. Man, I'm going to be all over the place with this. I'm trying to really, I want to give you guys as much context as possible for all your rants and concerns about the play calling. Because if the if the context is Ohio State's offense is very, very good, arguably or maybe inarguably the best in the country and the reason they probably might be the favorite to win the national title, if it's within that context and then you are asking how it can be even better, all there. If you are really panicked or really worried or really angry or really questioning, like you can quite, of course question it, but if you're just like upset about the play calling, I'm going to try to give you some context because I, I don't think that's where it's reasonable to be with Ohio State. Like, hey, the play calling's a problem. It's like, well, no, is the play calling the best it could be for something that might be the best? Great conversation. So that's that's what I'm trying to do here. I do think, and this is just very simple data, I'm going to try to mix in some more Complex data, but I'm also, it's okay to use simple data, I think, sometimes. Simple data, Ryan Day is a play caller when he was not the head coach. 73.5 plays per game game in 2017, 80.8 plays per game in 2018, which is crazy. Now, a lot of that is also bad defense. Your offense is playing four quarters. You're constantly moving. It's not just tempo. And there are some other better stats you can find that are reflective of tempo. I'm just giving you basics here. So 80.8, 2019 when Ryan Day becomes a head coach, 76.4, 2020, 71.3. These are all plays, offensive plays per game. 2021, 70.5, 2022, 65.8. So they are running 15 fewer plays per game offensively than they did in 2018 right now. So I do think there is a conversation about the difference between Ryan Day, the offensive coordinator, and Ryan Day, the head coach. And I do think Ryan Day, the offensive coordinator, was worried about getting after it a lot by throwing it on the attack. Let's hang 60 on Michigan, and like that's where it's at. And it's not that he doesn't want to do that anymore. Of course he wants to do that. But I do think he has grown into taking a more holistic approach to calling plays. And I think he thinks, A, much more about complementary football, which is one of those things that can drive you crazy and is the kind of thing that Kirk Ferentz has his hats on, hangs his hat on and makes it an excuse for punting a million times and having a bad offense. You can just say complementary football and like think it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, and it's not. But I do think Ryan Day thinks about that more. 
I do think Ryan Day thinks more about not turning it over. And I think you look at that Penn State game and JT Tuimolowau, and by the way, we have something we're going to discuss about how I just said that. You look at the plays he made, unbelievable believable individual efforts. But there were also some situations he was unblocked on one play, which allowed him, I'm not sure if it was a tip or his one of his actual picks, sort of an unblocked edge guy. You leave that, you're going to try to make a throw on an angle there. You just throw it over the defensive end. It's kind of been the play call to say, well, I'll just throw it over the defensive end. And it's like, well, what if the defensive end is a supremely gifted future first-round draft pick who is an unbelievable athlete and a great technician and is working his butt off to make a play there? It's like, eh, you'll be fine. And then it's a pick. And so I think like Ryan Day does, I, I he does not want to live in that world. Maybe more so than I think we realize. And there is a balance. There's like risk in every play, and I think sometimes I certainly have been guilty of this. And I was just trying to talk to people, you know, get a sense of this, right? I mean, it's just one of the things you want to make try to have a sense because we're on here talking six podcasts a week, and we want to tell you it's great what we think, is it? That's the full Buckeye. It's great what we think. Is it Buckeye talk? That's the full one of that. But at some point, it doesn't matter what we think. It matters like kind of how they're viewing things. So I'm just trying to like get a sense, right? And I do think maybe we we have thought, I have thought, hey, best quarterback, best receiver room, boom, 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 here you go, hang 60. And I do think there's a, a greater risk-reward calculation and discussion that is constantly going on within the Ohio State offense. And for instance... You look at the Ohio State offense, they got it going against Penn State. Also, they have lost seven turnovers this year, Ohio State has. That's tied for the 12th fewest in major college football. They have gained 16 turnovers. That is tied for the 14th most in college football. They are have a turnover ratio of plus 1.13 per game. That's seventh in college football. I believe that a decent chunk... The lo- more than half of turnovers are luck. But there is also a way you go about your business. And I think Ohio State, maybe you don't like it, but I think it's, I do think there's more of a conversation about that of believing in the offense. If you're in a tight game, make sure you don't shoot yourself in the foot. Make sure you don't give away six points on a careless pick six. Don't be reckless. And it's going to come around. And that that is an actual, that's a greater chunk of the approach to the play calling than maybe I have given it credit for. And I think it's because Ryan Day is a head coach, not an offensive coordinator. And he's four years into this now. And he's been through the ups and now he's been through downs, right? He's been through the reality of of last year. So I think that matters. And I think I certainly would be more critical if I, I get critical of head coaches who used to be offensive coordinators who to me still feel like offensive coordinators. It's like, yo, bro, like you're in charge of the whole team now. You don't get just to play, you know, stick your head in the play sheet, chuck it around time. Like, it's it's more than that when you're the head coach. So I think there's an acknowledgement there that fits into all of this. And I would keep that turnover margin in mind. And I would think I would keep the strategy of ultimate belief that the offense is going to come around. We're going to, even with the passing game, like they're going to grind it out, kind of. They're going to poke and prod, grind it out a a thousand percent belief it will come around, but let's not make any catastrophic mistakes along the way. So that's one of the things I wanted to say. I also want to give this context, and it is not to undercut any of the rants that you guys sent in. Yards per play in college football this year, 
simple. I get it. Simple. Ohio State first, 7.75 yards per play. So they gain more yards per play than any team in the country. TCU second, Tennessee third, Georgia fourth, Michigan, for instance. And again, I, I don't think people are jealous, but it's just Michigan goes about it so differently than Ohio State. Michigan is 15th in yards per play, 6.75, right? They run it better than Ohio State. Ohio State throws it better. So Ohio State, on average, gains a yard more per play across the whole season. Defensively, Ohio State is giving up 4.51 yards per play, which is, again, part of this equation. The defense is better, and that has an effect on everything. Because you know why they ran 80 plays per game in 2018? Because their defense was horrible, and they didn't have a choice. The defense is much better. So they are first in the nation in yards per play offensively, fifth in yards per play allowed. The result is that Ohio State's differential in yards per play, how much more they gain per play than what they give up per play, is 3.24. That is first in the nation. And I just did the top seven teams in the playoff rankings. Here are the top seven teams in the playoff rankings. Differential in yards per play, what you gain versus what you give up. Ohio State first, 3.24. Alabama second, 2.80. Georgia third, 2.68. Michigan fourth, 2.64. Tennessee fifth, 2.20. TCU sixth, 1.94. Clemson seventh, 0.89. So Ohio State's differential, offense to defense, is a yard more than, for instance, Tennessee. So I think that matters. So if you're, you know, the discussion about what could they do better offensively, let's keep in mind they lead the nation in yards per play. They lead the nation in yards per play differential. Points per game, Tennessee 49.4, Ohio State 48.9. So Ohio State is second in the nation in points per game. And then looking at, um, this is yards per play broken down run and pass. Ohio State is second in the nation in yards per attempt among Power 5 teams. I threw out the service academies. Among Power 5 teams, Ohio State second, 10.5 yards per attempt. Rushing the ball, they are 13th in the Power 5, 5.39 yards per rush. All right, so second in passing, 13th in rushing. Tennessee, a great offensive comparison for Ohio State in a lot of ways. They are 11.3 yards per attempt, so they're number one in the Power 5. 11.3, Ohio State's 10.5. Rushing the ball, Tennessee is 4.6 compared to Ohio State's 5.39. They are 29th in the Power 5. So then this is the other thing. So that would lead you to be like, okay, well, Tennessee is quite a bit behind Ohio State. They're a little ahead of Ohio State yards per play thrown up. They're quite a bit behind running it. I bet you Tennessee probably doesn't try to run it that much. Plays this year. Ohio State has run 242 242 passing attempts, right? 242 passing attempts and 284 rushing attempts. And that takes scrambles and all that stuff into account too. 242 pass, 284 rush. All right, hey, why are they running it more than they throw it? Tennessee, 251 passing attempts this year, 347 rushing attempts. So basically the same number of passing attempts, and Tennessee's run it 60 more times than Ohio State has. And Tennessee is much worse at running it than Ohio State is. So if you're someone who thinks Ohio State should run it more, then maybe you like the Tennessee thing. But if you're one of these people who's like, why do they keep trying to run this thing when they can't do it? Well, they run it better than Tennessee, and Tennessee runs it more often. So, and then EPA, which is, again, sort of an expected, how much an individual play based on complete context um, is expected to gain. 
Offensively, Ohio State per play, per play is first in the nation. Pass play, they're second. Running play, they're fourth. Pass play, Tennessee is seventh. Running play, they are 16th. And so, again, overall, when you say Ohio State is first in the nation in overall EPA per offensive play, hey, they're second and pass. Who's first? Okay. So, Ohio State, second and pass, fourth and run. Here's the team who's first it's North Carolina, and North Carolina is 60th in run play EPA. So, that is the one team that is ahead of Ohio State in sort of the efficiency metric of individual pass plays. They're so unbalanced. They're first and pass, 60th and run. Ohio State is second and pass and fourth and run. So I thought it was important to do that. I hope that gives you context of it's going pretty well. And I know the stats went down, especially running the ball against Iowa and Penn State. Of course they did. And and that that is an issue. It is an issue. But I'm going to take a break, and we're going to get back to more rants. We're probably not going to get to 10 separate topics. I feel like this needed to be done. And when we get to some of the rants, more of them, maybe you'll understand why. I hope that helped. I am not trying to make excuses for Ohio State's run game issues at the moment. But I just want the conversation to be the sort of correct type of conversation. And we'll have more of it next on Buckeye Talk. Okay, let's try this. From the 330, Ohio State fans can be insufferable. During the game and the game thread on Reddit, people were calling for Ryan Day's job, calling him awful. It was despicable. So I do think it's almost like people get possessed during a game, especially when Ohio State is behind. And this happens on Twitter. This happens everywhere on social media. When people can express, it's the thing that you usually just scream at your TV, but now you can scream it to the world. I would not go in there. It's probably better for your mental health to just scream at your TV or be there with your friends and family and the people that you know and love or the people in a stadium or whatever. But I, I would not go down that rabbit hole because I most of the time it's like as soon as you get done, it's like, OK, I didn't mean it. It's, it's fine. So if you want to, if that helps you to relieve the anxiety to like let it out on social media and question Ryan Day's job or anything, if it helps you, I'm not sure how it would, but if it does, great. If it doesn't help you, I would not engage in it because it's not really a rational thing that happens. It's sports. It's sports irrationality, which makes the world go around. It's why we have jobs. This is not a, it's not a science podcast. It's a sports podcast. There's a, there's a irrationality built into it. Buckeye talk. But it's at its most irrational in the midst of a game when Ohio State is losing. So it's okay to just maybe ignore it. From the 330, it's Kelly and Millersburg. To the fans who want to question Ryan Day's play calling, I believe in Ryan Day. He always seems to make adjustments to the offense in the fourth quarter. All three of the games where the offense, quote, struggled, the fourth quarters had been an offensive explosion. I think Day is feeling out of defense the first half and then exploits the weaknesses before the other team can adjust. Um, that is the the kind side of the feeling it out part. There are many people who also observe that feeling it out and don't really enjoy it. Uh, this is from the 423. It's Ben from the 757, a first-time rancher. Welcome. I was in Columbus for the Iowa game. After the game ended, we were driving home. My aunt made a comment that Ohio State, quote, plays with their food, making a funny reference to the way bears and wolves play with their kill before devouring it, using it to compare that to the way Ohio State seemingly toys with teams they are confident they can beat before putting the game away. I immediately knew I had to research this idea and do it as a rant take. So here it is. 
I have started my investigation at the beginning of this current season. However, I can personally recall many games in my adult life previous to this season that you could cite also. The Notre Dame was a game was a perfect example. Ryan Day and the offense, they were well aware that they were far more talented and skilled than the Notre Dame defense and decided to use the first three quarters as a science fair project to see what they could get away with. After 45 minutes of clunky offense, Day and Shroud shrugged and laughed and went out and executed the offense they knew would win all along. I flip ahead next to the Iowa game. The offensive play calling in the first half to me seemed almost experimental, poking the bear that is the Iowa defense to see what would work. In the second half, aside from the CJ interception on the first offensive play, they went out once again and executed the offense they knew all along would work. I finish here at the Penn State game. Sean Clifford and the PSU offense gifted Ohio State with two turnovers. If Ohio High State takes the field and scores a TD on both of those picks, and actually, I think I got cut off. I apologize. But the point is made, right? The playing with the food, and I believe it or not, someone else made a playing with your food analogy and rants this week. It's Brian from Snoqualmie, Washington. Scientists have often observed orcas, aka killer whales, playing with their prey, sometimes for hours before they finally kill the animal and consume it. They have even been they have even been seen launching injured seals back and forth up to 30 feet into the air with their tails, seemingly just for fun. It's a fascinating example to both intelligence and hubris in the natural world, natural world and shows the pure p- power that a creature at the top of the food chain wields. The problem is that even orcas can sometimes get too sloppy or go too far and get bitten in the eye by a slippery seal or stung by the barb of a stingray. What I'm saying here is that Coach Day needs to stop messing around with inferior teams in the first and second quarter of games. Run when he has to, yes, but why not just go for the kill shot right away? Ohio State's passing game is at the top of the food chain in college football. He should use it right away and quit playing with his food. Miraculous. How do we get two playing with the food analogies in a single rant request? Um, So the question is like, why is that happening? And I don't think it's playing with the food i think like a more apt thing is sort of like stalking the kill right and maybe you could have gone and killed it earlier but you were trying to like wait it out and make sure you were the most advantageous position um but i i do there are a lot of people who are wondering why it takes so long from the 918 is ryan day too smart for his own good in several games ryan day is clearly testing and trying a defense to see how they react to formations and shifts um so that's and then they go. Sometimes he spends so much time toying with the defense that he misses the very easy stuff that is working right in front of him. He's the best best play caller in college football, and I'm a schlub on a couch. But it feels like she, Greg Schiano's defenses, when they were so complex and so finely tuned to the opposition, they forgot how to play. That's like a comparison here from the nine one eight. So that's like another of like the why is this happening? The the messing around kind of thing. Here's another one. From the 440, it's Nick and Seven Hills. My rant is more of a tinfoil hat conspiracy. I, like most fans, was frustrated and confused with the early game game plan against Penn State. It wasn't until I heard Day's interview as he walked off the field Saturday that I realized this, that uh, that last week was all gamesmanship for the game. They basically said they knew they could just turn it on and beat Penn State. Day and company didn't want to put anything on tape for Michigan to look at. The run game looked bland on purpose. Day against Notre Dame, Iowa, now Penn State has been run heavy. It's almost like he's trying to convince Michigan that's what they're going to do after the toughness comments last year. I know this is all a reach, but it was a weird game, game plan that made no sense and was immediately abandoned the the second Ohio State was in danger. So I think there 
I, I think it's not almost that they don't want to put stuff on film. I think it's more almost like they do want to put stuff on film. And they do want to put balance. They do want to put run game stuff on film. And they do want to make teams prepare for everything. And then, honestly, like when it's winning time, I don't know. I I know um, there are people who uh, – so, like, this is kind of tied into this. And I love this because somebody – I'll get to it at the end why I love this. Because this person sent a rant and then sent a longer version of the same rant and explained why it was short the first time. So it was 513. New modified rant. Saying Ohio State doesn't need to run the ball is one of the most ridiculous things you've ever said on the podcast to date, Doug. Even the air raid teams have to run it effectively on the limited times they attempt it. The yardage doesn't have to be nearly equivalent, but an average of four yards per carry is not too much to ask from a top five team and the talent they have. I don't want to be Michigan, but I do want to avoid having half of the rushing attempts be zero or negative plays. No excuses. It just has to be better. I had to cut the other one short as I was on a date with my wife. So it's like, I respect it. That you like, you have a thought, you want to share it, grant time, and it's like, ah, oh, I'm eating dinner. You're at Olive Garden, and the breadsticks are there. And you want to have a conversation. You and your wife are out. If your wife comes before the pod, Buckeye Talk, your wife, your spouses, your children, your good friends, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, cousins. Uh, depends how good of a cousin. Maybe the podcast ahead of cousins, depending. I mean, if like a cousin's like your sibling, you grew up in the same town, and you hung out all the time. But if it's like a cousin you only see like, twice a year, then I think we come first. But so I respect the fact that you were at dinner with your wife and then you saved the rest of the rant for later. I also sent back to that person that in the 2019 playoff, something like LSU threw for like 975 yards in the playoff and like ran for 320. So it was like 75% of our offense was throwing it. And when I say they don't have to run it, I, I don't know that I mean zero rushing yards and zero attempts, although, frankly, I'd be here for it, probably trying it. It's like, oh, you know, C.J. Stroud was 68 for 80. I think I'm kidding. But, like, that's what I mean. Like, like it, no balance, right? Again, balance a different way, variety a different way, but not run-pass balance. 75% of your offense is the passing game. Like, I, I don't think that's impossible. Now... Do you want to do that tomorrow? Well, I don't know. Like, do you want to, like, make sure that everybody's got to prepare for everything? That makes sense to me. And they're going to win these next three games, no problem. And then we'll see what happens against Michigan. And if they beat Michigan in the Big Ten title game, it gets probably a very good Illinois defense. And then if they if they win that, in the playoff. We'll see. But I think there's a world where they do end up being really pass-heavy when it really, really, really matters. But in the meantime, they're trying to work it out. So, um I think part of the issue, and we had like a similar discussion. I don't want to like repeat myself, but it's hard because it's kind of all the same thing. And it's the questions I was asking last week and the discussion of when do you give up on something and when do you keep trying something? So I think like the bubble screens and Nathan and I went about as deep into those as you can get. Here's how I think you have to think about the bubble screens. And again, I'm just trying to get more information from the people because it's not what I think. It's how we're trying to help you guys understand maybe what they think. The bubble screens are like a run. They're part of the run game, right? So I think that lowers the expectation level that it's like, okay, well, you're 10.5 yards per attempt, but they're not expecting 10.5 yards per attempt on the bubble screens necessarily. If you can get four, six, great. It's like a run play. Think of it that way. We already said that. However, I also think they kind of think of the bubble screens as deep shots because what they see there is... If you have three receivers over there and it's three defenders, it's make two blocks, make the third guy miss, and you're gone. 
Or if it's two receivers, make one block, make the other guy miss, and you're gone. And at least one of the bubbles, I think maybe more than one, was against zero coverage, which means everybody's up at the line, there's no safety help. And if you beat those guys on the edge, you're gone. So if they threw a deep ball, they did throw like a deep shot to Marvin Harrison that was four inches over his fingertips that they missed. It was like one of the two targets of Marvin that didn't hit. If you throw a deep shot and get and don't complete it, so it's a zero play, I don't know that people go, oh, God, that was awful. They got zero on that play. Did you see that? They threw it like 50 yards down the field. But guess how many yards they actually got? Zero. Like, that's not really what we do with deep shots. Like, well, they tried it because if they hit it, it was going to be huge, and they didn't hit it. There is an aspect to the bubble screen, I think, the way they think about it. Again, I'm just trying to talk to people. If you hit it, you're not really going to get four. You might get 20, and you might get 60 and end up in the end zone. For instance, like the Parker Washington thing, as Nathan said, it's not quite a bubble screen, but it's like a quick hitter, break a tackle, gone. They think that's there sometimes, especially against zero coverage. No deep safety help. And they believe in their blockers. But guys miss blocks. And like double checking on that, like it's not that cool. It's not that cool to them that like these are good football players and they think they should be able to make the block. So if you run the play and you think the scheme is good and the guy misses the block, do you not run it anymore because you missed a block? Or do you try it again? Then you miss the block again. But you still think schematically it makes sense, especially if they're going to bring all the safeties up to the line of scrimmage. So you try it again, and you miss the block again, and that's how you wind up with a Mecca Egbuku with three catches for minus two yards, right? That's a Buka's year, that's his early game stuff. So they adjust it, but I think in trying to get like, why are they doing it? If you think of it as kind of a run play, then all of a sudden four yards isn't so terrible. And if you think of it as kind of a deep shot, then all of a sudden zero yards sometimes isn't so terrible because there's a payoff. Now, they didn't get the payoff. And they stopped it eventually. They didn't run 20 bubble screens, but I think that's part of it. And the same thing with the run game. And they did have it just, again, if you go back and watch, and I, I went back and watched, and I got to look at some stuff, and there's just a couple times, there's probably three, where if if Trayvon Henderson, two of them, he kind of fell. One, he tripped over Parents Johnson's legs, and the other one, he kind of, the, the, the worst, the most upsetting one, I think, that's like, oh, man, you can watch and say, man, that was there is wide zone right, cutback lane. You saw it while it happened, but if you get a look from behind, um, there is really a lane there, and it has a, I think it's about from the 30-yard line. I think it has a chance to be a touchdown if he hits it, and he slips, like skids, slips, trips, falls in the hole and gets zero when it could have been 30. So like the scheme of that, I think they feel pretty good about it. The wide stuff left, I think they felt good about it. There's another one that you could find where Trey got about five, but you can see it when it's there, it's opening. It looks like if if you can make, if you could hit it hard and get to the second level and make one guy miss, you have a chance to get out of the house on that one too. So nothing's perfect. And, you know, you can draw it up on a, on a napkin and that's great, but these are humans trying to execute it. I think you could find maybe 50 rushing yards that are kind of there for the taking that didn't get taken. And that's just a, reality of how it happened in that game. So I think when you think about it that way, it's like, okay, well, you're going to give up totally on the run game right away when it was like, man, it felt like we kind of blocked it up and it was there and it didn't quite happen. So if we if we call it again and block it up, maybe it'll hit this time. It it wasn't exactly slamming, slamming in the line and getting nothing every time. Now they did, Nathan said they had a multiple, multiple zeros, 
right? And you've got to call the right kind of plays. And I do think Trey in space. Now, the hard thing is he he hit it for the touchdown. What if they had given up on the run on the touch on the run game before the touchdown? That's 41 yards up the middle, perfectly blocked. He hits it, he hits the hole hard, right up the gut, and runs away from people. So if you had abandoned the run game, now they might have, I mean, CJ was on at that point. Maybe they passed their way down the field and it's fine. But also, if you're advocating give up on the run game, which I might be advocating, then you probably don't get that because you're it's it's game winning time. It's nine and a half minutes left. The game's on the line. And if you've given up on the run game because you don't believe in it, you don't get the 41-yard touchdown run. And maybe that's okay. Maybe you find a way to win otherwise. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say, why do you keep running it? Stop running it. It doesn't work. And then take the 40-yard run in the fourth quarter with the game on the line. Because if if you wanted to give up, then you should have given up. So I do think um, tendencies matter. And by the way, they're aware they're aware of all their tendencies, right? I mean, it's, nobody's bringing information. It's completely fair to question it, but it's not new to them. So I think there's some real stuff in there to question. I think there's some real stuff in there for them to get better at. I think there's some real stuff in there of like maybe get Trey in space. I still would like to see throw him a screen and get him out in space a little bit more where maybe he's not trying to have to read as many holes. Um, Let him, and then, you know, run some run plays where you let him be a one cut back and go. It's right there. The hole is right there. This is it. There's not a hole to search out and find, you know, where it's going to be. You can set up some run plays like that. Some power plays where it's like follow the pulling guard and that's roll. So that's okay. And also, like, out in space, like, let him get one-on-one with a linebacker where he's not reading a hole. He's, like, going to try to break a guy's ankle. So um, I think there were some holes there for the taken that weren't quite taken. But it, all of that leads to why you maybe keep trying to do something because you, maybe you're not viewing it, like, as a schematic failure. You're not viewing it as, man, they're stuffing us. You're viewing it more as, like, it's there if we make the block. It's there if we hit the hole. And so that leads you down that path. From the 859, I'm a big day supporter and love what he's done here. But one thing I've recently identified that frustrates me is how willing he is to struggle early during big games. It seems like he goes into big games with a conservative approach of coming out smooth and slow and sort of letting everyone get into it and screwing around with the other team and then going off late. While this works against most teams, they can't do that crap against Michigan, Clemson, Georgia, Bam, etc. I just don't understand why he doesn't come out aggressive and ruthless like he did against Wisconsin or Michigan State last year. He needs to come out and put his foot on opponents next early and not decide to do it in the third quarter. Again, like last year, like Michigan State, like is they had a terrible pass defense, so they they threw all over them. And I do think, I do think if you if you think there's a psychological thing here of they're trying to establish something because they couldn't do it last year, I think there might be some real truth to that. Like I don't I don't know if they would I don't even know if they would realize it or admit it, but I do think there's some toughness psychological. We're going to show who we are, um, but I also think there's also real working it out. And again, I. Don't want to overstate it, but I I would just advise have respect for the Michigan and Penn State defenses. And I think we've made that point a couple times. Um, let's do one more here. And I, I'm sorry I can't get to everyone on the play calling. I apologize. I read them all, like probably like 140 this week. Read them all, read them all, read them all. Love them all. Thank you for sending it. But I'm trying to pick the ones that sort of express like, you know, they stand in for what everybody else said. This is from the 423. It's Ryan in Chattanooga. I don't think my rant will be read. I think sometimes I pick those just to prove you wrong. It is being read. I don't think my rant will be read, but it's nice to vent. And you guys are my best Ohio State friends through the week. So here it goes. Right back at you, Ryan. 
I don't think we have to be timid about criticizing the offense when things aren't going well. We don't have to preface every conversation with, I know they're the number one offense, or I know they scored 44. When you have five stars at every position and a play caller that's lauded as one of the best in the game, it just seems like it's taking a while to get on track the last two weeks. The bar at Ohio State is higher, and it's unfortunate that you're not allowed to struggle against inferior opponents. But that's the job, and it is what it is. The other team practices too, but in the three biggest games of this year, it just doesn't seem like we've been out. It doesn't seem like we've out schemed anyone. We've just out talented opponents because you can't bottle up CJ Marvin EE for four quarters. Typical Ohio State fans, I know. Maybe we're just jaded by Tennessee throttling people on offense this year, but the last two weeks have just seemed off. So I don't think you have to apologize for that either, although it sort of feels like what I did for 10 minutes there, Ryan, was exactly what you're saying we don't have to do, which is like you don't have to say they're number one. Um, But I did, and I thought it was important to do that. And I just – I don't know what else we're going to get to. Because, like, I really – I have all these rants. I, I'm going to save all this stuff from you guys. I got one about why dark meat on is is better on, on turkey and chicken and the chicken leg thing we talked – turkey leg thing we talked about the other day. I have a real good one about Burger King that I'm very interested in. Um, I just – I don't know that if we're going to get to it. Man, there's a lot of good stuff here. But this is, like, where we're at right now. This is the important stuff. So I, I apologize that I can't get to everybody. Um, but I'm going to – let me move to a second thing here real quick. That is, I don't know if it's related or not, but it's something I want to bring up. From 614, I keep coming back to a single theme for this season. If not now, when? I've had similar questions answered on the pod, but I really want you to drill down. If this team can't get over the championship hump, what team can? This SEC doesn't seem to have an unbeatable team. Michigan doesn't have the transcendent defensive players it did a year ago. And the other undefeated teams around the country, like Clemson and TCU, look deeply flawed. Am I crazy for thinking this has to be Ohio State season to win it all. Ohio State will always be talented and compete at the very highest level, but if I were but I worry if not now, when from the 614. So I don't think you're crazy to feel that. Um I think there's a couple things at play. I think the two major things at play are second year starting quarterback, which I just it doesn't mean you can't win it in year one. Trevor Lawrence won it in year one. But I think we just saw the pick CJ threw at the end of the Oregon game, he wouldn't throw now. He just wouldn't. He wouldn't have thrown it from the jump this year. It's just a different world. So that matters. And no super team that there have been times as good as they were in 19. It was like, man, has anyone beaten LSU as good as Ohio state was in 20? It was like, man, has anybody beaten Bama? I think that matters too. So those two things are definitely at play here. The thing that I would say is I just think Ohio state is kind of past that level of thinking. Because, and as we've said before, just when you think you know the year, you're off. Just when you would have said, well, hey, the recruiting, this, that, the other, feels like 15. No, it was 14. And, and you know, I think you would have probably would have felt like 05 was probably the better year for it. And then they are undefeated number one. They go to the national championship in 06 with some of the veterans of that team and a bunch of young guys filling in. But 05 is really the better team, probably, right? You still had A.J. Hawk and Dante Whitner and Bobby Carpenter, Nick Mangold, and, and San Antonio Holmes and all those guys. So... I don't think you, I think as an Ohio State fan, you don't ever have to feel it too much. Can you feel like there's a better chance? But yes, I don't think you have to live in the world of if not now, when? Because frankly, the answer to when question mark is always, maybe, always, maybe, AM. Ohio State football, they're AM. They're not PM. They're AM. They're always maybe. Like, is it this year? I mean, is it a football season? Then maybe. 
And I do think the other thing too is like not to put too much on it. And just when you think you have the five star, you know, well, it blows up. Dylan Rayola is going to come here. He like reaffirmed again to one of the recruiting writers this week that like he's totally locked in on Ohio State. And Dylan Rayola, and again, Quinn Ewers, we get it. Justin Wick, like you can, uh, all these great quarterback recruits, and they don't always work out. CJ Stroud's a last minute guy. Troy Smith came here as an athlete, right? We get it. Best laid plans. When you have Dylan Rayola lined up to be here, 24, 25, 26, like I just think they're going to be very, very, very competitive (laughs) in a world where it's so much about the quarterback. So that's the other thing too, that like there's a, there's kind of a, a certainty that comes with that, you know, our lips to God's ears on certainty of a high school quarterback who's not going to be here for two more years. But I think that's the other thing here. So I know what you're saying. We talked a lot about, hey, 23 super team. Um, maybe it's 22. But the other thing, listen, so the, the hard thing is the quarterback's going to be gone for next year. But Marvin's back, Ameka's back, Travion's back, JT's back, Jack's back. Burke, Hancock, and Johnson at corner are back. Sonny Styles and CJ Hicks are coming. Lathan Ransom's probably back. Like, right? Like, there's a there's a lot back here. You just have to figure out quarterback. You got to figure out quarterback. And by figure out, I mean like Kyle McCord probably needs to be ready. Or and if not, Devin Brown needs to be ready. So it's like, oh, they better figure out quarterback. It's like, well, they have two five stars waiting there, two a, a five star and a four and a half star. So, um, but the super team thing is real. And it doesn't feel like there's one, or as I've said on this pod a couple weeks ago, I think if there is one, it's probably Ohio State because they like have the best offense and the top 10 defense. So like, you know, but I also think the defensive level of talent is going to keep increasing. And I don't think the offensive level of talent is going anywhere. So, and that, guess what? They need tackles for next year. What else is new? We've only talked about that 400 times. All right. This is not a normal rant pod. And I apologize for getting heavy on one topic. I hope I'm not boring you. I hope I'm not boring you. Somebody sent in and said, get a co-host for the Rants Pod. And I said, first of all, no. And second of all, I would definitely read a rant from you about why I should have a co-host for the Rants Pod. But I don't have that rant to read. So we're going to get to a couple more things real quick before we talk playoff rankings. We'll do it next. All right, let's try to hit a couple of these. I apologize. This got away from me a little bit. I just think it's important. Um, From the 419. Take one more swing at the poor running performance, a play I don't think I've heard discussed. It could have been a point of emphasis. The start of the second quarter up 10-0 and get stuffed on third and one. Penn State then scored the next 14. That could have loomed large. Ryan Day said getting stopped on the third and one, it's like he can't shake it. It's still bothering him. So, like, we have not talked about it much, and it's it's always one of those you try to find turning points in games. That's an early one that I think is really good to point out. It's driving Ryan Day nuts. So if we didn't talk about it, don't worry. The head coach is, is – can't shake it. I think he's like thinking about it when he falls asleep. But I like the second second question here from the 419. Does Jim Knowles hate Michigan? He's done so much right to improve the defense, but he has, has he acquired that essential disdain for the team's bitter rival? I hope he has and brings that energy into the game and shuts them down and reminds old Jimmy boy he's still on first base. So that's Jim Harbaugh, I think. So here's the thing that I think about Jim Knowles. Um. So he's from Philly, and he got question. He got a question about Penn State last week, and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, Penn State, when I was growing up, listen, nobody in Philadelphia cares about college football. So Penn State was a huge thing, right, when Jim Knowles was growing up, and he grew up in the paternal era because the paternal era lasted forever. But I, I think I said it then. It's like, 
Jim Knowles trying to talk about Penn State. It's a little bit like Ryan Day trying to talk about the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry growing up in New Hampshire. It's okay. It's pro. It's a pro football town. So Jim Knowles is like Eagles, Philly, Sixers, all in. Ryan Day is Patriots and everybody else. Um, Jim Knowles played at Cornell, coached at Cornell, and then his path to Ohio State primarily went through Duke and Oklahoma State. And this is the thing I think about Jim Knowles. I do think he is a football maniac. I think he loves the game. I think he loves X's and O's. I think he loves the physicalness and the toughness and and trying to bring that out in players. And I th- he is exposed to something that as in his mid-50s, he's never been exposed to before. So my impression is that Jim Knowles does think, will think, that this whole Ohio State-Michigan rivalry thing is really cool. And that Yes, Bedlam's a big deal in Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, and Duke, North Carolina, and thinks he, I don't know, Cornell, Dartmouth, I don't know who Cornell's rival is. Things he's been a part of, those were also cool, but he, I don't think he, like, quote, understands it yet, and he doesn't really have context for it yet, only what he's been told, but I bet you he will love it. And I think because he loves this, and I think he loves that he, he's he's kind of like a down nitty gritty guy, but I think he loves the trappings of the game as well. Like he 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 loves teaching, but he loves getting after it. So I think he's going to be like when the first Ohio State Michigan game is over, he's going to go home and like tell his family and be like, "Oh my, I can't that thing was nuts because isn't it cool to be part of something that's nuts." And everybody knows about Ohio State, Michigan, but you can't know it. You can't really understand it until you live it. So, but I do think, I don't think he will be like an outsider who's kind of like, ah, you know, I don't know. It's just a game. I don't, I don't think he'll be that way. I think he will dive in head first. So I think you will be um, satiated and pleased by how Jim Knowles goes about his business um, for the Ohio State, Michigan game. So let me get to this one real quick before we do ranking stuff from the A47. It's Ken, Illinois. I am not sure this is a rant. It might be an unrant. I implore each of you to enjoy this team. I have been a fan since the 70s and a nut since the 80s. This is a special time to be an Ohio State fan these last 10 years. And this team is really special. They might stumble and they may not finish the job, but they are special. Enjoy the beauty of their play. Enjoy their rare talent. They are as special as I have seen. Better than 2002 and 2014 as good as 98, 15, and 19. We are very fortunate. Take time to savor it. Ken from Illinois. I, I do think maybe we should start asking for unrants, rants and unrants, because, you know, I think it's good to rant. I mean, you guys know that. But I think it's good to unrant sometimes and maybe take a step back and, like, just, like, understand context a little bit. I, I think I've told you guys before, I used to shout into the stands when I was covering a lot of Ohio State basketball, Greg Oden's freshman year, like when I would like look up in the stands and it wasn't a sellout, I would yell into the scans, stands like, enjoy this. This is not normal. Take advantage of this. So, I mean, there's a, there's a part of that um, that still applies, uh, applies to this, right? So I, I think it's, you don't want to hear it from me, but like from a fellow fan, I think it's, uh, it's well said. And I do think it's well said. All right, let's do, the rankings. Ohio State is second on the prediction pod. 
Nathan's instinct, I think, was to say that Tennessee was going to be first, and I kind of like talked him out of it. And then, like during the course of the day, I was like, "No, nah, I'm going to be wrong." I underestimated, and someone on Twitter pointed this out. We didn't talk enough about the Tennessee win over LSU. And as Nathan texted the tech subscribers at six one four three five zero three three one five, once you saw LSU at ten and Bama at six, you knew Tennessee was going to be number one because now they have two top ten wins. If they had not, if Bama was a little bit lower, Bama was probably a, hot, a spot higher than people thought. They thought. Probably should be behind TCU. Um, and then LSU 10 is a little hot, I think. Like, it's a little hot. But once it was that, it's like, all right, they have two top 10 wins. And Ohio State's best win is Penn State, and Penn State's like 15th. So I do think the balance mattered. And then the committee people, like, are talking about balance in every other context once you get past Tennessee, and Tennessee is the, the least balanced. And here we're talking balance, not run pass. It's just, like, offense, defense. Tennessee is the least balanced of the top teams that Michigan, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, they're all more balanced, especially – Bama's kind of a little bit behind, but Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, more balanced offense, defense, both top 10 offense and defense. And they care about that more, but then they're just explaining what they decided to do. And I do think some people, and, and I will tell you this, and again, this is not a good thing for me to say as a person who has a college football podcast. I'm pretty over the debate about this. I'm like, the, the debate being unveiled on Tuesday night and like another half an hour of ESPN discussion about it. And then just the endless discussion that I am going to participate in when we do this on the College Football Survivor Show on Wednesday. It does matter because I do think you get some clues from the committee in the first rankings. But I don't like – there was there was a college football person who tweeted something with like such certainty that like, well, you know, rankings, I don't know. But like obviously this should have been this instead of this. And it's like, it, is it obvious? Isn't it just okay for us to have differing opinions? So there was a time, I mean, like when this first started, 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, I probably went four or five years of just being hot. Ooh, I couldn't wait to tell everybody how smart I was and how wrong the committee is. And you guys can still, just because I'm over it doesn't mean you have to be over it, but I am like really over it. (laughs) Like it is just, like it's fun. And like the people, and I also don't like the completely dismissive like, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think because it doesn't matter anyway. It's like a lot of stuff in life doesn't matter. But we talk about it a lot. You know what doesn't matter? Like the Kardashians. You know what doesn't matter? Like who wore something to a movie premiere? And we talk about that stuff ad nauseum. So guess what? We're going to talk about the playoff rankings. But like the certainty with which people – and then people come in and say, well, they don't matter. But obviously it should be this. And it's like, okay. Okay, genius. So in the end, and and I do think, again, I went through the committee, the the mock committee process a long time ago, and then Shahan went through it again this year, and like talking about it with Shahan, which we did a whole college football survivor show about it, sort of re-reminded me of, of my conversation. There are so many ways to evaluate the teams. In the end, it's not consistent because you're applying 60% of this metric and 40% of this metric. And then the next team you might come do it the opposite. And it's 40% this, 60% this. So in the end, Tennessee got the nod because they had the two best wins. Because they have two top 10 wins and Ohio State can't match that. Then among the teams that don't have two top 10 wins, Ohio State, I think, is the most balanced. And they talked about the explosive offense. The nature of their offense is explosive. They talked about that. That gave them the nod over Georgia and Michigan. I was a little surprised that Clemson was ahead of Michigan, but I do think when you schedule a bad non-conference, and then again, they had a series with UCLA that got canceled 
But still, in the end, they picked three bad non-conference games. Ohio State tried to play a good team, and it turns out Notre Dame wasn't as good as everybody expected. That, I do think, is different. And I do I do think that's different than just playing Colorado State and Hawaii and UConn. It's like, well, you know they, they're going to stink. They, they tried to play Notre Dame, and like you can only do what you can do. And by the way, Notre Dame had its starting quarterback in that game, and now they don't. So I think that's a factor, too. Um, Michigan's schedule did hurt them. Now, it hurt them a little more than I thought it might because – they're behind Clemson. Clemson played a bunch of close games, and Michigan is like really balanced. But the schedule hurt Michigan. And I think the offensive dominance coupled with balance helped Ohio State. And like if you're making a strong case that Georgia, because they blew out Oregon, should definitely be cut be ahead of Ohio State, I do think it's fair to point them to the Missouri game with Georgia. And that's closer to a loss to like a bad team than I think Ohio State has come. And so it's not just about the best win. So I think in the end, it's fine. I think it's fine. And the thing is, Ohio State's going to wind up, if Ohio State makes the playoff, they're definitely going to be in the Fiesta Bowl. Because if they're not number one, then the number one team's going to be from the South and it's going to pick to go to the Peach Bowl. And if they are number one, then Ohio State's going to pick to go to the Fiesta Bowl because the Fiesta Bowl is like their second home. So like they're going to be in the Fiesta Bowl no matter what. And so the only question is, if they make the playoff, who are they playing in the Fiesta Bowl? Are they playing... One or two or three or four. But guess what? I think they're all going to be good. I mean, there are years when it's like, oh, that fourth team. It's like the fourth team might be the Georgia-Tennessee loser. So, you know, I think you might rather be the two seed and play Clemson rather than be the one seed and play the Georgia-Tennessee loser. And as we said, if there's two SEC teams, they're not going to pair them against each other anyway. So anyway, I think it's fun. I don't, I am over the impassioned, I'm smarter than everybody else takes. I think the positioning matters because I do think, for instance, we found out that if Tennessee loses to Georgia and Michigan loses to Ohio State, Tennessee has a much better chance to get in at 11-1 and one than Michigan does. That that proved that tonight. That's one of the things that got shown for sure. Um, if Ohio State loses to Michigan and Tennessee loses to Georgia and they're competing for potentially the fourth spot at 11-1, I think they're pretty close. Right? So that's you know, that's good. If, if Georgia and Ohio State lose, well, Georgia's behind Ohio State right now. All that kind of positioning does matter because you can kind of win your way in. But if you don't win your way in, then the positioning matters and the first rankings tell you something about the positioning. So I'm kind of done with ranting, I think. Now I'm going to do a whole discussion with Shahan because I do, I do think it's interesting how people look at college football. But also the 12-team playoff is coming, and I will say this. I wanted to use this last one. From the 2-6, and six, I thought I was a fan of the 12-team playoff, but a 12-team playoff diminishes the great games this weekend. Loser of Georgia-Tennessee is likely on the outside initially and needs breaks to get in. If it was a 12-team playoff, they make it, and there's only a seeding difference. The Ohio State-Michigan winner is a likely winner-take-all now, but in the 12-team, it doesn't matter except how much time you get off. So I agree with that. That's kind of always been like my reluctance for it, but I've also come around on the 12 team. And I think the thing we have to keep in mind is that there is also an aspect of the 12 team that like it is going to diminish in some ways the regular season that it makes these two. There's two awesome games, right? Staring us in the face in, in November, Ohio State, Michigan and Tennessee, Georgia. They're both potentially losers out, winners in, losers out potentially. In a 12-team, all four teams would make it. We would know it for sure. It would only be for seeding. But if there was a 12-team right now and the higher and the better teams won the first-round matchups, these would be your quarterfinals potentially. 
Tennessee versus Oregon, Ohio State versus Alabama, Clemson versus Michigan, and TCU versus Georgia. And so I agree with what the ranter, the texter is saying about like, oh, the 12-team playoff. But then there's a part of me that's like, man, I kind of want those quarterfinals, right? Like, does that sound good to you guys? And listen, you got to get Tulane in as the sixth conference champ. And there's going to be some two or three loss SEC team as an 11 seed that doesn't really deserve to be there. But man, for those quarters, it might be worth it. Can you imagine? Like, I'm kind of fired up for that idea. So like, it's okay. Is a give and take to everything. We are, but again, Tennessee, Georgia, this weekend is going to be incredibly, incredibly awesome. And everybody should watch it. And I definitely do have a text here. Let's do that. From the 937, I hope everyone who is a part of Buckeye Nation tunes in after Ohio State crushes Northwestern to watch what should be an epic clash between Georgia and Tennessee. If you only tune in for one simple reason is to get a feel for Ohio State with how Ohio State may match up with either team in the playoff. Like, yes, do that. You're also just allowed to watch it for fun because it's going to be fun as heck. But you can scout, too. So it's going to be more fun because of the stakes. But in a 12-team playoff, it would still be great. And then they both would make it. And you'd be like, great, more of them. So that's where we are. I'll, I'll end with this last one about the rankings. It's Hey, Doug, it's Paul living in the 325 from the 614. I don't get why people get so worked up about the playoff rankings. If you're in the top four, you're in good shape. The only thing that changes is the jersey color. I can understand in any other year where it seems like there's a juggernaut everyone's trying to run into or avoid. But as you guys said best, this year is wide open. Even if Ohio State winds up fourth in the initial rankings, they wind up second. Um, Georgia or Tennessee is going to lose, and the winner of Ohio State-Michigan gets in. The real question is where do guys like Clemson and TCU end up and how much of the committee values a one-loss Big Ten SEC program versus them. Love the podcast. Love the work. Thanks for all you guys do. So, yeah, I think it's a good approach. And, again, I just – so I think the the real take on the ranking is somewhere between, like, it don't matter why do you talk about something that doesn't matter. It's like because it's football and we like it and we like to have things to talk about. And I can't believe – I can't believe you think that. Ugh. Even like if you want to do it to the committee, fine, but like don't do it to other college football people who maybe think that Ohio State should be here, Georgia should be here, Tennessee should be there. So just be like, I can't believe I'm saying this. This is not Buckeye talk. Be slightly less obnoxious with your takes. That is not, that's an un Buckeye talk, just like we might have un rants. It's like name something you would never hear on Buckeye talk. Buzz, be slightly less obnoxious with your takes. Never hear it. But I'm just, I just thought Tuesday night was like, interesting and then like everything after it i was like oh god can we maybe we should charge 40 dollars per tweet so people stop and and i don't need like a 45 minute espn discussion about it so anyway weird rant pod basically zeroed in on one thing i apologize that's not normally how we do it but it's just where a lot of people's heads are at so we'll be back with q and i'll try to squeeze like a lot of these well it might not be q and i have an idea i have to run it by steven and nathan there's probably enough Q&A that we need to get into, though, because I didn't get into it here. We probably have to do Q&A. I'm trying to figure out how we're going to work basketball in. The start of the basketball season, they just played an exhibition game on Monday night, and season starts, like, next week, I think. And so we need to, like, uh, you know, acknowledge <laughs> acknowledge that. But I don't want to take away from any football talk, so I want anything we do with the basketball pod or two at the start of the season to be bonus, a bonus pod. But I also have an idea to do some 
basketball football combo rankings in the Big Ten that isn't just about the programs, but like how much the fan bases care about each program. And it's sort of like a satisfaction ranking that it is both how good the programs are, but how good the one that you care about the most is compared to the one, you know, men's basketball and football that you don't care about as much. And what's the percentage? Like if you, if your hundred percent breakdown would be like 85% football, 15% men's basketball at your school. Well, then we would say, okay, well then however good the football team is, that takes up 85% of our rate of our rating. And how good the basketball team is only takes up 15%. But if your school is 70% basketball, 30% football, then it's reversed. Like, it's what you care about. It's basically like the things you care about the most, how good are they? And then the thing you also kind of care about, how good are they? And a combined ranking of that, where we would try to like, we'd have to come up on our own with like what we think the percentage is of, of what the fan bases care about, and then assign a rating of like how good we think the programs are. I'm kind of interested in that. I think you guys as football fans who are primarily here for football fans would, would probably enjoy that. But I don't want to take away from like, you know, these guys are trying to win the national title and you're super interested in that. And then we also just need to do like Steven and I just need to do like a basketball preview. Who's going to play? What's the rotation going to be? How good are they going to be? They have all these freshmen. I think we'll at least do a bonus pot on that. But I think we'll do Q&A because I have like 4 million things from you guys that we didn't get to. I think we'll do a Q&A on Thursday. Um, thanks for being part of it. I, 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 I want to talk, I don't want to talk up or talk down to you guys. I want to talk with you guys on this. So I hope you didn't think I was talking down to you when I'm just trying to give context. Um, because I, I a lot of the questions, and again, I, th- I thought, I thought it was a really good news conference on Tuesday and, and you guys know, I get kind of obsessed with that. I did a pod called the West lot pirates with some Northwestern guys that they put up. You can find it on Twitter. And they wanted to ask me a lot about like sort of news conferences and accountability and asking questions. And you you guys know I get obsessed with that. But I thought we, I thought it was a good news conference. My question on Tuesday was bad, but I thought a lot of other people did a really good job, um, like digging in on some stuff. And in a news conference like that, you don't have to preface everything like we know you're the number one offense, but but in the discussion, overall discussion, when you write it, when you talk about it in totality, it's also true. They have the number one offense and just have that in your head when you're asking the, the pertinent questions and about everything else. Okay. Thanks, you guys, for letting me do this. Uh, readcleveland.com slash OSU. Would love to have you as a tech subscriber at 614-350-3315. Nathan, Stephen, and I will be back on Thursday for now. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Town.